This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you and welcome to the show. Last night, we featured a program from Lights Out where a symphony conductor was driving himself crazy at the thoughts that his much younger wife was having an affair. And in tonight's Philip Marlowe program, Mexican Boat Ride, the same scenario exists. Boy, a lot of cheating seems to be going on back there in the 40s, huh? Well, we'll delve into that in just a moment or two. First, a word about the actual show itself. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe was a radio series featuring Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe. The program differed from most others in its genre. In 1932, at the age of 44, Chandler became a detective fiction writer after losing his job as an oil company executive during the Great Depression. And due to his straightened financial circumstances, he turned to his latent writing talent to earn a living, teaching himself to write pulp fiction by studying the Perry Mason stories of Earl Stanley Gardner. His first short story, Blackmailers Don't Shoot, was published in 1933 in Black Mask. That was a popular pulp magazine. His first big novel, The Big Sleep, was published in 1939. Now, in addition to his short stories, Chandler published seven novels during his lifetime. And in the year before his death, he was elected president of the Mystery Writers of America. Chandler had an immense stylistically influence on American popular literature. He's considered to be a founder of the hard-boiled school of detective fiction, along with Dashiell Hammett, James M. Cain, and other Black Mask writers. The protagonist of his novels, Philip Marlowe, like Hammett's Sam Spade, is considered by some to be synonymous with private detective. Both were played in films by Humphrey Bogart, whom many consider to be the quintessential Philip Marlowe. So let's join Mr. Marlowe, who has been hired by a jealous husband to check up on his wife. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time I took a beating and gave one. The man who lived in the dark was afraid. Someone I never got to meet was murdered, and a knife-wielding crab was destroyed. All because a girl who hated the water took a boat ride in old Mexico. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's story, Mexican Boat Ride. It was a rare morning, clear and clean. 
You know the kind that knocks ten years off your age and makes you taste the sunshine in your orange juice? It was a day to be spent on an open road to someplace new and exciting. But a phone call I'd received had reduced my open road to Carmelita Avenue and nothing more exciting than Beverly Hills. The house I stopped at was one of those you entered through a tunnel of dank, overhanging foliage on a flagstone path grown green with damp moss. A low, thick-walled affair with tiny barred windows hidden from the sidewalk. I pressed the bell, and a moment later, a sallow housekeeper opened the door with what seemed to be a last ounce of strength. She squinted at my card and beckoned me inside. I followed her down a dusky corridor to a heavy closed door, where she signaled me to wait. The air in the house smelled thick and stale. When she came out again, she held the door open for me and motioned me into a room full of darkness. It became nearly complete when the door clicked shut behind me. All I could see was the vague form of a man in smoked glasses propped up on a bed across the room. There's a chair beside you, Marlowe, if you care to sit. Oh, thanks. I'm Carl Estabrook, importer. You may have heard of me. No, I don't think so. Well, no matter. <laughs> Marlowe, I have a peculiar problem. I want to know why my wife, Ona, was on a boat day before yesterday off the coast of Mexico. Think you could find out? Well, if that's all you got to go on, I doubt it. No, there's a little more. Huh? Ona and I planned to take vacation together. But when I was confined with this illness, we decided she should go on alone. Oh, then your illness is the reason for the midsummer blackout, huh? Yes. If I expose my eyes to light at any time in the next few weeks, the doctors promised me plenty of pain and virtual blindness. Oh. It's temporary, but tedious to mend. That's why I need a capable man with sharp eyes. To look into what, specifically? The paradox of my wife aboard a boat. Mm -hmm. She has a phobia about them. The mere thought of being on a boat makes her panicky. She drove to Ensenada, Mexico, earlier this week, but believe me, her plans did not include boat rides. Well, tell me, how'd you find out she was on one? Is she right? No, she hasn't written me at all, but that's not unusual for her. A friend of mine got back yesterday from a fishing trip down there. The day before, his boat passed another with a girl aboard. He got a good look at her. He was so sure that it was Ona that he hailed her. The girl turned and ran inside. <laughs> it, it bothered him to the extent that when he got home here, he called me to find out if Ona was in Ensenada. Is that all? Yeah, that's all. He didn't get the name of the boat. Look, you want me to go all the way down there just to find out if the girl he saw was Mrs. Estabrook? Right. Uh, what is your fee, Marlowe? Fifty bucks a day, plus expenses. That's the minimum, if I take the job. I don't think I will. When business gets so bad, I have to do divorce work, I'll quit and write my memoirs. No, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. No, no, no. sit down, Marlowe. Owen and I have had our share of difficulties, true. She's quite a few years younger than I, and used to be a dancer. But, generally speaking, we're happy. Specifically what? I'm worried about her. Here. There's money in this envelope and a recent photograph of my wife. And there's more of both if the need arises. Uh, incidentally, what kind of a day is it outside? Gorgeous. Well, then you can drive. It's only 250 miles. Yeah. By the way, how has the importing business been lately, uh, legitimately speaking? You do have a suspicious mind, don't you? Only when the situation calls for it, and this does. However, I can understand an imagination working overtime here in the dark, Mr. Estabrook. So I'll take your money and go on down to Ensenada and see if anything's wrong. But look, I'm giving you notice beforehand. If it turns out to be family laundry and nothing more, I drop it. You're a reputable man. Just see that I get my money's worth, Marlowe. 
and you can keep the change. I'll expect to hear from you. When my eyes adjusted to the dazzling glare outside, I looked in the envelope and picture of an impish, dark-haired woman and five $100 bills. For the first time, I realized what Estabrook had meant by keep the change. But it didn't help my attitude even a little. By 2 o'clock, I was on the road south. A late lunch in La Jolla with an old friend, a routine baggage inspection at the border. And then 70 twisting miles of lonely road brought me to Ensenada, just as the Mexican sun dropped into the sea. I drove past the piers and canneries at the edge of town, and then along the curving shore to the only hotel elegant enough to meet the demands of the woman I figured on Estabrook to be. After I'd gotten a room and cleaned up, I went to the desk and asked for her. She was registered, had number 74, and at the moment was out on the patio. All of which sounded ridiculously normal. And I thought again of an imagination at work in a dark room back in L.A. I thanked the clerk in crippled Spanish and turned in time to catch the end of a long, cold stare from a pair of frog-like eyes that bulged out of an otherwise handsome head on a man in a gray gabardine suit. I didn't think my language had been that bad. But when Popeye followed me out onto the patio, I wasn't too sure. There was no mistaking Ona Estabrook. She sat alone at a table in the far corner, a tall, minted gin drink in front of her. So I put on my best tourist-type smile and walked over. Well, Ona Estabrook, is this a pleasure? Enjoying your visit? What? Well, yes, very much, but I I don't think I... Know me? Oh, of course, you wouldn't remember. My name's Marlowe. Philip Marlowe. No, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe, but you I... You were a heard... dancer, weren't you? Before your marriage, I mean? Well, yes, I was a dancer, but you, you'll have to excuse me now. I, I, I'm expecting a friend. I hope oh, you don't mind. Oh, well, just one thing then, Mrs. Estabrook. Would you mind telling me why you were out on a boat day before yesterday? A boat? Mm-hmm. Why do you ask that? Because you hate boats. You have a phobia about them. And yet you were seen aboard one just two days ago. How come? Well, I... Oh, how come to help me? I spilled the drink all over my skirt. Excuse me. I have to change. That maneuver was as subtle as a bulldozer at work. When she spilled her drink, it was done desperately, and fear sent her running to the exit. I turned to follow her as she left the lighted patio and headed down a dark arcade. But a gray gabardine suit and a pair of Popeyes slid out of a chair and beat me to it. I waited until their footsteps faded, which said they turned a corner. Then I started after them. It was strictly follow the leader, but I didn't realize how many were playing the game until a knife point stung at the skin at the soft part of the back about kidney high. Stop, senor, and don't cry out. Don't even say ouch. I turned and saw a mottled red face ugly on a squat long-arm body. The ivory-handled knife in his hand could have clipped my spine in one easy thrust. You got a car here, senor? Come on, I speak English good. You got a car? Yeah, I got a car. What's it to you? I am Hayaba, the crab. It's lots to me. What's Let's your go. pitch, Buster? Come on, tell me. Uh, Martinez says for me to keep a sharp eye on things, to be sure something is not wrong. It looks to me like something is wrong with you, senor. Who's Martinez? <laughs> you going to play possum, senor? <laughs> uh, this one is your car, huh? All right. Yeah. Okay. I take first your one. Uh, now, please to get in. You're going to drive. Believe it or not, you're making a big mistake, Krabby. Besides, what if I don't want to drive? Oh, you better want to drive, gringo. <laughs> or I kill you right here. Go on, drive. Handle it.
Yes, not here. And now we get out. Uh, it's nice and quiet here on the beach, no? Uh, walk over there to that old adobe wall. We're going to have a talk there. It's going to be dull, Buster. We've got nothing in common. Please, senor, don't make it hard on me. I don't know why you got to come and mix everything up again when time is running out. Why did you come? I needed new haraches. Mm, look, senor, you think I'm ugly? You know beauty, Crab, let's face it. See, si, and I can act even uglier. Maybe I could go on the radio and make a big hit, no? <laughs> or maybe I make the big hit on your face. Oh! Don't try something, senor. Or I kill you with your own gun. Now, the truth. You spoke to the senor about the boat. Why? I forget. Oh! Who are you, senor? Private detective named Marlowe. Oh, a private detective. Who are you working for? Dolph Bentley? I never heard of Dolph Bentley. Who's he? You're lying. The senora knows him. I heard her say Dolph Bentley won't make it tonight. Yeah, he's lucky. See, I tell you something else. He better not make it. Martinez is going to do business with one man only tonight. Now you want to say something? No? Then I'll say it. You take what's going to be left of your face. Oh, oh senor Bentley, until I get out of Ensenada oh. don't come back. Oh. Understand? Ah! Oh. Wait a minute. Wake up, wake up. Stop the crash. Come on. Who are you? Oh, it's you. I'll kill you. We can't take it easy. Uh, You're in good hands now, Marlowe. I'm a fellow uh, American. (laughs) You know, you're pretty lucky, you know that? I am? Oh, sure, yeah. Where'd my pal go? I am? Oh, I chased him off. You know, it's a wonder he didn't put a knife in you. These yeah. fellows are mean with knives. This guy was no slouch with a gun butt, either. Hey, hmm? where'd you come from, anyway? Oh, down the beach a ways. I just finished oh. working on my boat, and I was taking a oh. walk, and I heard the commotion came over to see about it. This guy was beating you up, so I yelled and started for him, but he ran. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I'm glad somebody stopped him. Thanks very much, Mr. De... Roman. Oh. Uh, Lou Roman's my name. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm pleased to meet you, Marlo. Thanks. You know me? Uh, well, yes, I... I took the liberty of looking in your wallet to see that that devil had robbed you. Oh. It doesn't seem so, though. Yeah, because I got here just in time. You're a private investigator, I see. Hey, you working on a case now? It's debatable. So far, the case is working on me. Oh. I'd like to find a guy named Dolph Bentley, though. Dolph Bentley? Yeah, yeah. Guy who beat me up had the idea that I was... Ooh. I was hired by Dolph Bentley. Did you ever hear of him? No. No, and I come down here every year to fish, too. Uh-huh. Know a lot of folks around here, but I never heard of that one before. Uh, why are you after him? Well, he's he's tied up in some way to the crab who seems to work with another guy named Martinez who, in turn, is going to do some business of some kind tonight with somebody other than Dolph Bentley. I don't know. And it's it's all connected for some screwy reason with a with a woman who took a boat ride the day before yesterday. Well, uh, what about that? Uh, the woman being on a boat, I mean. Oh, well, she can't stand boats. She's afraid... Of... Oh, my head. Oh, wait, wait. Here. Thanks. I'm going to get you some first aid right yeah, away. That's a good idea. Holy smoke, my car. Man, I'll relax. Huh? Relax. It's right over there. Uh, come on. Let me help you out. All right. Easy oh. now. Easy. Oh. That's it. Now, I'll drive you. Uh, where are you staying? Uh, at the hotel, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Thanks, good. Roman. I'm, yeah, I'm still busy. Yeah. Easy. I got you. I, I got to get back there. I got to find that girl because she's up to her hair doing a very nasty mess. Uh, listen, Marlo. Huh? If I can help in any way, let me know, will you? You know, us Americans have to stick together in a place like this, right? 
That's it. Come on. Let's go. Oh. Lou Roman, a hail fellow, was indeed well met. He found my gun and drove me back to the hotel. A long hour had gone by since Owen Astabrook had run from the patio, followed by the pop-eyed character in the gabardine suit. I tried a room, checked with the desk again, and from there spent 30 minutes peering into corners and balconies and getting nothing but indignant glares from Mexican lovers. So I left the building and started through the grounds. I worked my way from the stables up into a secluded garden, deserted by all but a marble statue of Montezuma, who when I passed him groaned. In the dark at my feet lay Haiba the crab, his mottled face twisted into a tortured grin of agony. And sticking straight up just above his belt buckle was the white ivory handle of his own knife. Crab! Crab, who was it? Who got you? Oh, I, I am sorry what I did. Never mind that. Who did this? Do you know? Oh, see, see. It don't Bentley. Now get a doctor. No, no, you, senor. I, I tell Martinez that Dolph Bentley is... Crab. Yeah. <laughs> In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, when you're 65, if you have worked in business or industry, call any office of the Social Security Administration for information about your old age and survivor's insurance. The account number that appears on the Social Security card identifies your wage account. The amount of retirement and family insurance that may be payable is set by this account. Now with our star, Gerald Moore. We'll return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Mexican Boat Ride. Even as the life trickled out of the ugly little man called Aiba, and his face, which had been knotted tight in pain, went slowly limp and he was still. I knew that I'd have to get next to Dolph Bentley before the importance of Ona Estabrook aboard a fishing boat off Ensenada would make any sense. Also, I knew that there was a good chance that said Mr. Bentley and the gentleman in Greg Aberdeen, known to me as Popeyes, were one and the same. So I started back to the hotel. But halfway there, I stopped at the sight of a figure ahead scampering toward an all-alone taxi parked near the main entrance. It was Ona Estabrook. I took off after her. When she was in the cab and away before I could get close enough to do any good, I tried the next best thing, which was the sombrero doorman nearby, who I figured might have heard the address she'd given the driver. Yeah, but what I didn't figure was that the doorman might not habla much English. The Senora Estherbrook. Uh, si, senor. Her enters libre a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know that. Now, look. Where did her go? Which way in the libre? Libre. Uh-huh. Oh, un momento, senor. Libre, libre. Oh, no. No. No, look. Amigo, I, I don't want a taxi. I don't, no libre. No libre. None whatsoever. Now, please, come here. Let's let's back it up a little, huh? Senora Estabrook in Libre, right? Si, senor. Okay. Now, where did she go? What direction? Uh, que direction? Oh, I ought to comprendo. Uh-huh. The senora. Yeah, the senora. Que direction? Comprendo? Si, senor. Senora Estabrook, go to the pier, the, the fishing pier. Which one? Which fishing pier? Oh, Kual Pier. Uh, the small pier, senor. Uh-huh. The little one near the big cannery. The fishes cannery, That's senor. all I want to know. Gracias, amigo, and... Uh-oh. Senor? 
Senor, what are you seeing? I'm not sure. But even if I were, I wouldn't be able to explain it to you. Buenas noches, pal. Thanks a lot. I had been seeing at the silhouette of a man huddled close to the ground and slinking out from a hotel along a high hedge that led back toward the statue in the body of Aiba, a man who I knew could be the elusive Popeyes. I followed the walk that was close into the hotel until I was on a line with the hedge, and I started after him fast. I still had a good two yards to go when he heard me and pivoted, so I swung first. Oh! Why, you dirty... Roman, wait a minute. Hold it. Gee, it's me, Marlo. I'm sorry. Oh. Holy smoke, I... I thought you were someone else. Oh, can't you, maybe? Oh, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you hit me with? Huh? I have everything I had. I figured you were Dolph Bentley, and as such, Roman, I didn't want you to get away with murder, literally. Murder? Hey, not that girl you mentioned, Marlo. Oh, Astabrook? Huh? No, no, no. The corpse is that item you sigged away from me over in those ruins. Somebody got to him with his own knife there near the statue. Aha, uh-huh, then I was right. I did see someone move over there. Well, yeah, a couple of minutes ago, Marlon. I was on the balcony outside of my room at Face of the Garden, here, you see. And when I saw you run for the main entrance, I had a feeling that you might be in trouble again, so I came on down here. Well, then what happened? Well, I was about to call out to you when I heard some noise over there near the statue. It was a man. He was running away fast, heading toward those stables. A man wearing gabardine, maybe tan, maybe gray. I... Maybe Dolph Bentley. Thanks, Roman. You've been a big help. When you get back to the hotel, tell him about the dead man, will you? i got to run. <laughs> stable was a robust left fielder's pegged to home plate from where we'd been standing. So by the time I got there, I was out of breath and facing nothing more important than thick darkness. A lot of hay and a couple of horses who couldn't sleep nights talking things over. Until I moved around a corner past the stalls and close to the half-open door of a shack. Marked both cabina telefono and the equivalent in English that showed a single unshaded light. And under that, a man standing alone next to a telephone, writing something on the back of an envelope. He was wearing a gray gabardine hey, suit, and when he lifted his Popeyes from a paper in front of him, mm. I knew the next move had to be mine, 38 and all. Let it go, Buster. Keep your hands close to your sides. Just as you say, senor. I'd be a fool not to obey you. You're so right, a dead fool. So keep that in mind while we chat, won't you, Mr. Bentley? Bentley? Uh-huh. How did you find out who I am? It was easy. All I had to do was listen to a dying man's last two words when I asked him the name is murderer. He said, Dolph Bentley, any comment? Yes. You know a lot, senor. Don't resent it, friend. I learned it all the hard way. Don't move, Bentley. I was only changing my position, senor. Which will be prone if you try it again. Now, what do you know about this whole mess and an American girl named Ona Estabrook, who I figure is no mobster? Nothing, senor. You're a liar, Bentley. Which brings me to the point. One, why the pressure on the girl, and two, what's so important about her taking a ride on a fishing boat? Come on, brother. It's getting late for a murderer. Start talking straight the first time out. All right. I'll start with a question. Senor, how does all this concern you? You gain a percentage if the smugglers are not interfered with, perhaps? We were talking about the girl, remember? Yes, I remember. But you see, senor, I have little to offer on that score. How little? A single observation. In your country, senor, people who do not mind their own business are called nosy. Here in Mexico, we have another term. Asno. Which means what? Jackass, senor. Who, unlike the cat... Cannot see in the dark. But can try his best, Bentley. No gun, senor. Okay, amigo, no gun, but this. Uh-huh. Asno. When Bentley met the floor and went out cold, I sagged to one knee. Stayed that way until the air rushing into my lungs quit sounding like sandpaper over a drumhead. And I got back to my feet and turned on a bracket lamp on the other side of the room. 
I opened Bentley's jacket, slipped his thirty-two automatic out of its shoulder holster, emptied the clip, and stopped dead at the shimmer of light dancing on polished silver that I hadn't expected. It was a badge. Below his shoulder holster and pinned to his vest. Republic of Mexico, Department of Customs, Captain. I made a dive for the envelope near the telephone. On the back there was writing in thick pencil, which I finally figured to mean fishing pier near Cannery, 2 a.m. Inside, nothing. On the front, further proof that I'd never met Mr. Dolph Metley at all, but instead it tangled hard-like with one Captain Juan Descartos intelligence section custom building, Mexico City, Mexico. While trying to revive Captain Descartes, the truth rammed into my mind. Owner Estabrook had rushed off for the pier near the cannery. That Captain Descartes had noted is a good place to be at 2 o'clock in the morning, which was less than 20 minutes away. And a great time for me to get to my car and the pier. You're a bright boy, thanks. Well, do you like the job on the car, senor? I think it shines well for the eight pesos you owe me. Uh, nobody asked you to bother, Junior, but I'll see you later. Right now I gotta run, huh? For eight pesos, one dollar you can write, senor. I'll replace the distributor cap. What? Come here, you. But, but senor, it was very dirty all over inside, too. The steering wheel black as can be. Look, I, I ruined my best rag cleaning That's it. That's tough. Now, give me that distributor cap, or you'll be the saddest pair of dark eyes between here and the Panama Canal. Senor! Oh, never mind. Here. You pay me the dollar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put the cap back where it belongs. Quick, will you? I'm in a hurry. Well, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go! A precious 60 seconds ticked off before I was out of the parking lot and driving fast toward the fishing pier near the cannery. Where I knew I was finally going to get next to Dolph Bentley, and if I made it in time, prevent another murder. But when I screeched to a stop away from the pier, piled out of my car, and ran the length of the oil-soaked planking to where a single boat was making ready to cast off, I saw one of the two persons aboard the small catch was Ona Estabrook. The other was Lou Roman, hearty American fisherman. When I stepped aboard, our hunch hit me right between the eyes. I pulled my gun and pointed it an inch above his waist. What are you doing here, Marlowe? I might ask you the same question, Roman, or do I call you Bentley from here on out? Marlowe, you know, now he can't kill me. Now I don't have to be afraid of him anymore. Oh, Marlowe, thank goodness you got here in time. Yeah, hooray. The Marines have landed in the form of a private... Cut it out, Bentley, and don't move. Oh, no, what do you mean about being afraid? What's your connection with this fisherman here? Well, it was an accident, Marlowe. A mix-up in our baggage... Lou Roman and I both happened to stop for customs inspection at the border at the same time, and our suitcases were switched. I didn't notice it at the time, but when I got to the hotel, I discovered the mistake and went to Roman's room to correct it. But instead, you found Bentley here posing as Roman, right? Yes. He killed him, Milo. He told me he did. That's a dirty lie. Roman's all right. He's in Chicago. No, he's not. He's dead. You killed him. Someplace between here and Tijuana, Milo. He said I'd get the same treatment if I opened my mouth. Then he's the one who forced you to go out on that boat yesterday. Oh, Stay back, idea. Bentley. Yes. That people wouldn't be suspicious. He made me appear at the hotel, in the patio there, at the restaurant. Well, why didn't you run? Well, I couldn't. He wasn't around. Another man was. A horrible man with large eyes that never left me. Yeah. So why don't you drop it, Marlowe? No sale, Bentley. You see, I know that the horrible man with the large eyes can't be one of your henchmen. His badge says so. What? He's an officer, Marlowe? Yeah, Captain Owner. Give up, Bentley? You had better. There are too many men ready to take you. Descados. <laughs> Where'd you come from? Oh, 
I have been here quite a while. But your story was so interesting, I just couldn't interrupt. When Marlowe took you for Dolph Bentley, Captain Descartes, you played along because you didn't know who he was, is that it? Yes, senora, and I did not find out until I heard Bentley call Marlowe a private eye. <laughs> You're not mad at me, Captain, huh? Even though I bungled your plan to capture Martinez, and uh, not to mention our little meeting at the stables. <laughs> uh, senora, do not say that you bungled the job of catching Martinez. It was more a matter of uh, priority. Uh, por favor, senora, the tacos. Of course, here you are. <laughs> Gracias. You see, Senor Marlowe, I am certain that one day I will catch Martinez. But not at the cost of letting a murderer kill again. Mm. But, Senor Marlowe, there is one thing that puzzles me. The murder of the one known as Haiba. Oh, Martinez' henchman. Well, you see, Captain, he knew that a man named Dolph Bentley was mixed up in this because he'd overheard Ona and her keeper, then called Lou Roman, talking about him. He wanted to know more. Also, he couldn't figure who I was. So he beat you up? Correct. Bentley, of course, only saved my life because... It was an easy way to find out just how much Haiba did know, after which he got to him. Enough? Not quite, senor. There is still one thing. How did you know that Lou Roman was actually Bentley? On a hunch, Captain. And by positive identification from you, Ono, when we were on the boat. But um, now it's my turn. I got a question for you, honey. Have you had enough vacation? Uh-huh. Matter of fact, Marlo, I wired my husband just before we came in to eat. Oh. I... I said the change did in your world good. Be home tomorrow to stay. Love always. Well, Captain, will you pass the tacos, please? They're, they're awfully good, really. It was late the next afternoon, and Ona Estabrook was already gone when I checked out of the hotel. Said goodbye to Captain Dos Cartos. And headed north for the border, where two hours later I stopped for customs inspection of my baggage. It was dark, and I was only 50 miles from Los Angeles before I realized exactly what that inspection had meant. Because it was then, for the first time, that I noticed the little cowhide suitcase on the seat next to me, which should have been mine, was tagged differently. The name and address of a man who lived in Long Beach, California. <laughs> I got there, I kept driving. I knew I could ship it to him and ask for mine in exchange when I got home. Oh, yes. I'd had just about enough for a while. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with death on my doorstep and got worse when I lied to a sympathetic bull, was pistol-whipped by a gorilla with dimples and fought with a kitten on the keys. And it might have gone on that way all night if I hadn't been helped by the king of the beasts. Stay tuned for Ozzie and Harriet next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 at 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Time now for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. (laughs) 
America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers. From Hollywood, International Silver Company, creators of 1847 Rogers Brothers Silver Plate, presents The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring America's favorite young couple, Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. that man and the two boys walking down Rogers Road? That's Ozzie Nelson and his two sons, David and Ricky. David is 12 now, and yes, it doesn't seem possible, does it? Ricky is 8. Say, Ozzie seems rather concerned about something. I've never heard of such a thing in all my life. Me either. Me either. Just can't understand it. Never heard of a football exploding before. Yeah, but don't forget, Pop, you sat on it pretty hard. Sure scared me. What do you think it did to me? I sit down to read the paper and a football explodes under me. Glad it wasn't a basketball. I'd probably still be going up. <laughs> like this would be dangerous. I think we ought to write a letter to the manufacturers. At least get your money back. What did the football cost you, Ricky? Twenty-nine cents. <laughs> of course, you can't expect too much for 29 cents. Guy, there's the kind of football I'd like. Look at that one, Ricky. That's the kind they use in real football games. Just buy that one, huh, Pop? Now, wait a minute, boys. I can't tell anything about a football by looking at it through the window. Like to feel the weight of it, examine the leather, look at the stitching. See how much it costs. Well... <laughs> Come on, Pop, let's go in. Boy, Ricky, look at all those baseball bats. Can we have one of those, too? Now, one season at a time, David. We're just getting a football. And don't handle things. Hey, David, look at these over here. Uh, how do you do? I'd like to buy a football for my boys. Sorry, I'm just a customer. Oh, oh I, uh, pardon me. I've been trying to get hold of a salesman myself. He seems to be pretty busy. See, I, I'm sorry to be staring so, but you look awfully familiar. I was just thinking the same thing about you. I remember now. Rutgers. Class of 32. Of course. You're uh, uh, Bruce Manchester. No, no, just a minute now. Don't tell me. I got it. Nelson. Right. Of course. Nelson. Schnozzy Nelson. No, no, no. Ozzy. Oh, of course. Ozzy Nelson. Well, let me look at you. My golly, you haven't changed a bit. Put on a little weight, maybe. Oh, this is a pretty heavy suit I'm wearing. <laughs> Are you living here now, Bruce? No, no. I just came in town for a few days. Going to do a little hunting. Oh, that's right. You're quite the boy on the rifle team, aren't you? Well, I wasn't the best. You weren't so bad yourself on the, uh... uh the football team. Oh, yes, yes. But there was something else. You always carried something with you. Uh, I know, the ukulele. Oh, well, I wasn't the best. Uh, uh, what have you been doing, Bruce? Oh, I was flying transports in China for a few years. That got pretty tiresome. Yes, it does get on a guy's nerves. Then I spent a little time in Arabia and South America for an oil company. Then I went through the Congo with a zoological expedition. What have you been doing? Well, uh, uh, every Wednesday night I go bowling. <laughs> I'm married. In fact, those are my two boys over there by the counter. Oh, sure. Say, the little fellow looks a lot like you, Oz. Yeah. Uh, well, you can't see him too well. Uh, Ricky, stop pressing your face against that tennis racket. <laughs> Who did you marry, Ozzy? Well, the girl I used to go with. You remember? Oh, sure. That short, fat little girl. Uh, <laughs> uh, wait a minute. Fanny. 
That was her name. No, no, no. That, that was just a nickname. No, I, I really didn't go with her. She was uh, just a, a good dancer. Don't you remember Harriet? Harriet? Of course. You married her? Yes, sir. I know you're always chasing her around with your ukulele. <laughs> How'd you ever do it? Well, she finally caught me. <laughs> How about you? Not married, are you? No, not me. I'm afraid I'm the perennial bachelor. Oh, same old Bruce. Still the old woman hater. Mm, don't hate him. Just don't see any sensible reason for having him around. Please listen, Pop. He's the kind of love, boy. Genuine pigskin. Well, we'll see you in a minute, fellas. Uh, this is David, and this is Ricky, Bruce. This is Mr. Manchester, an old school friend of your dad's. Hello, fellas. Hello, oh, hi. Well, we'll have to get together real soon, then, Bruce. I'm staying down at the Elks Club. Why don't you give me a call? Do you do much hunting? Mm, no, Bruce, I'm not much with a gun. You got your chicken once, Pa. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't shoot him, David. I ran over him with the car. Well, <laughs> I'll give you a ring, Bruce, and maybe we can do something. Sure thing. Nice seeing you again, Ozzy. Never guess who we bumped into at the sports shop. Bruce Manchester. Bruce Manchester? Yeah, you remember Bruce from school. We went on double dates with him all the time. We used to go up and park at Inspiration Point. I've never been to Inspiration Point. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was Bruce and myself and Fanny, uh, Danny and Bob. <laughs> the four of us guys from astronomy class used to go up there. Was he that black-haired fellow who always used to smoke a pipe? Yeah, that's right. The, the good-looking guy, big outdoor stuff. He's going on a hunting trip, staying down at the Elks Club for a few days. Why didn't you ask him out for dinner? Bruce? Oh, I doubt if he'd want to come. He's strictly the confirmed bachelor type. He'd be bored to death having dinner here. I've invited Lucille Baxter over. I don't think he'd be exactly bored to death. Oh, I get it now. Will you tell me one thing? Why do women always have to be matchmakers? The minute you find out a friend of mine is in town, an eligible bachelor, you think of some girl you can call I up... invited Lucille over a week ago. Even before he's in town, you ask her over. <laughs> I don't be so silly. You haven't seen Bruce for years. If you do invite him over, I'm sure you'll find Lucille much more interesting than the Elks Club. Harriet, it's no use. Bruce has more sense than to get himself hooked. That isn't very flattering, dear. Do you feel you were hooked? No, of course not, but... Well, you know what those matchmaking deals can be. With us, it was different. I proposed. Nobody tried to push me into it. You invited me over for dinner. I remember it very well. I got the invitation from your Uncle Slug, the policeman. I never had an Uncle Slug, and he wasn't a policeman. Yeah, I guess he wasn't actually a policeman. He just used to go with him a great deal. <laughs> Nobody's trying to hook poor Brucey boy. Oh, no, I see that gleam in your eye, that matchmaking complex. Have you forgotten what Lucille looks like, dear? Men take one look at her and lose their mind. I know, but not this guy. He's strictly the bachelor type. I dare you to invite him over. I double dare you. If you want to call him, go right ahead. I'm just trying to prevent an awkward situation. Thank you, dear, but we accept the challenge. I'll go call him. <laughs> Hi, Oz. 
Beautiful day, huh? I think so, Thorny. It's a little too windy for me. Oh, this is the kind of day I like. That wind's from the west. I don't care where it's from. It's too cold for me. <laughs> you don't understand, Oz. When the wind's from the west, it blows the leaves off my lawn onto your lawn. <laughs> sour about today? Oh, it's nothing important, really. A, a bachelor friend of mine's in town, so Harriet immediately decides to cook up some matchmaking deal with a girlfriend of hers. I just hate to see the poor guy get hooked. Well, one of those deals, huh? Reminds me of the way Catherine hooked me. But you can't hear about it, Hans? Mm, no, not especially. Not. It was very clever. <laughs> she invited me over for Thanksgiving dinner and had the preacher hiding in the turkey. <laughs> Why is it that women are always trying to push people together and get them all married? Oh, there's nothing wrong with marriage. It's a great institution. I believe every man should be happily married, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> well, I agree, Thorny, but this is a little different. This is a fiendish, typically feminine scheme. Here is a guy, a happy bachelor, lives at the Elks Club, eats in restaurants. So Harriet's going to cook this guy a home-cooked dinner. I bet she's making those candied yams. Yeah. And a roast all spiced up. She cooks it with bay leaves and with thick brown gravy. And I'm leading this poor guy right into the trap. Oz, how could you? He could be eating at the Elks Club or the drugstore. Oh, the poor devil. Missing one of those drugstore dinners. <laughs> He's also having fruit salad. With that thick whipped cream on top? Yeah, and hot biscuits with butter and, and apricot preserves. Oz, if I had a stick, I'd beat you. I deserve it, Thorny. And that's not the worst. Listen to this. This girl, Lucille, she's absolutely beautiful, Thorny. You know, one of those, those redheads, you know, the sultry type. And here, this poor, happy bachelor, and he's going to have this beautiful girl thrown at him all evening, and it's all my fault. Oz, you monster. <laughs> and I do. Well, I'm still willing to help you, Oz, even if you are a heel. Tell you what. Yeah? I've... I've lived a bad life. Oh, now, Thorny. No, no, I've, I've been bad, Oz. I, I haven't been good. I... I've been bad. Thorny, what are you talking about? I... I deserve punishment. Spare that poor boy, Oz, and invite me. <laughs> I'm right here, dear. What do you want? Uh, I, I've been thinking things over. Maybe you'd better not call Bruce. Oh, I've already called him, and he's accepted. Isn't that nice? He definitely said he'd be here? Oh, yes. He seemed delighted. In fact, he's bringing out some new special hunting rifle he wants you to see. Oh, fine. Things aren't bad enough with a home-cooked dinner and Lucille. The poor guy's even bringing his own shotgun. <laughs> Hurry, this way, ladies and gentlemen, for the big contest of the evening, that super-duper colossal conflict that's been going on since the dawn of history, man versus woman. In 
a little city somewhere in America tonight, a titanic struggle is about to take place. I'm Bruce Manchester, Rutgers 32. I'm the woodsy outdoor type. I like tweed jackets, a good pipe, and the smell of a wet water spaniel. I'm a bachelor, and I hope to stay that way. Oh, driver, take me to 1847 Rogers Road. I'm Lucille Baxter. At present, I'm basking in single blessedness, but I must admit I'm looking for the right man. Hiya. Lucille, come on in, dear. Yes, folks, there you have it. What will happen when the irresistible force meets the immovable object? Will Mr. Manchester give Miss Baxter the cold shoulder? Or will lovely Lucy cook Bachelor Brucey's goosey? He told me you were having company for dinner. He said something about a hunter. Yes, uh, she's a friend of Mrs. Nelson's. <laughs> oh, how exciting. I'm a little worried. See, it's going to be a very intimate party, just, just the four of us. And this friend of mine, Bruce Manchester, is a bachelor. And I don't think... A bachelor? That... Yeah. Oh! <laughs> oh, Mr. Nelson. Well, you see, the girl... Would you do that again, please? Of course. Thank you. Uh, you see, the girl who's coming over is Mrs. Nelson's friend, Lucille Baxter. And Mrs. Nelson has ideas about interesting my friend in her friend. Well, of course. After all, Mrs. Nelson is a woman. You know, several people have mentioned that. Frankly, Emmy, I feel that it's my duty not to let my friend get hooked with, without at least a struggle. Oh, Mr. Nelson, you're so naive. What chance do you stand against a woman? You're only a man. Nothing but a man. What do you mean? It got me into the YMCA. <laughs> oh, but, but you men don't have our cunning, our trickery. Trickery? That's an idea. Trickery of all's fair in love and war. What are you going to do? Emmy Lou, just keep this in mind. I'm not quite as stupid as a lot of people think I am. Oh, I know, Mr. Nelson. I keep saying that. And you should hear some of the arguments I get into. <laughs> and this is Bruce Manchester, Lucille. This is Lucille Baxter. How do you do? Hello, Miss Baxter. Bruce, why don't you and Lucille sit over here on the couch? Oh, that's a good idea. Sit right here, Lucille. Thanks. And, uh, Bruce, uh, you sit here on, on the other side of me. I understand you're quite a sportsman, Mr. Manchester. Oh, well, yes, I, Bruce uh... is quite a sportsman, hunting, fishing. Of course, we married men don't get to do things like that. You know how marriage is. It ties you down. Uh, Lucille, don't you do a little hunting? Just a little. I'm not very good at it. Nobody's ever taken the trouble to teach me. Well, Miss Baxter, uh, I... Hey, Bruce. Uh... <laughs> yes? Uh, uh... Uh, uh, shot any good animals lately? <laughs> not lately. The hunting season just opened. I imagine it's a lot of bother teaching a woman how to hunt. Although I'd love to learn. <laughs> I'd be only too glad well, say, to Bruce, show you. Say, uh, Bruce, Bruce. Uh, uh, remember Jim Marshall? Uh, Jim Marshall? Oh, sure, Oz. Uh, as I said, Miss Baxter, if you are... Great you guy, really like great guy. I'll be stop interrupting. Oh, was I interrupting? I'm sorry. 
Uh, what were you saying about Jim Marshall, Bruce? Well, I was just... Uh, <laughs> I was just saying that... I wasn't saying anything about Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall? Oh, a great guy. He's married now, all settled down. Children, a wife, kids, all tied down. Dear, dinner's nearly ready. Don't you want to go upstairs and get your coat and tie on? Oh, Harriet, stop nagging. <laughs> Well, you know I always dress like this at home. That's the way it goes, Bruce. When you're first married, you dress up. But after a while, you learn to relax. What with helping cook meals, wash dishes, clean house, and look after the children, you get your good clothes pretty messed up. Uh, those hunting trips of yours, they must be pretty exciting, Bruce. Oh, oh fairly they... so, Harriet. I don't imagine you'd like a woman along on a hunting trip. Oh, no. They probably just... Getting away. Oh, certainly. Oh, no. No, as a matter of fact, most of the fellows are married. They bring no. their wives along. The women do the cooking. Well, it's no. very nice. I know, but poor little old me would only get in the way. Uh, speaking of the old gang, Bruce, remember Larry Scott? Poor Larry. Something happened to him? He's up there now, Bruce. Larry died. Uh, no, he and his wife are living above a garage. The <laughs> place is so hard to find now. There's a big housing shortage. Couples are living in tents and trailers. You mean you actually don't mind having a wife? Oh, towns. Not at all. In fact, it gets pretty lonesome for me. I'm the only bachelor in the crowd. Oh, well, poor little you. Yeah, a lot of young married People <laughs> living in piano crates or boxcars, a big housing shortage. Oh, dear, I smell something burning. I think it's my roast. Pardon me. Home-cooked meals, the joys of marriage. Home-burned meals is more nearly the truth. It happens all the time. Personally, I like meat well done. It gives it a nice woodsy sort of flavor. Uh, well, we might just as well go into dinner. When you smell it burning, you know it's ready. <laughs> Everything all right, Harriet? Oh, I hope so. I'm afraid the meat's going to be pretty well done. I caught it just in time. Come on in, folks. You won't have to coax me, Harriet. I haven't had a good home-cooked meal in ages. Well, don't be afraid to eat, Bruce. There's plenty of everything. What's that old quotation about eating a hearty meal? The condemned man... Never mind, dear. (laughs) Would you like more of anything, anybody? How about you, Bruce? Oh, no, thanks, Harriet. I've had plenty. It was wonderful. I can't understand how the meat got burned. I'm sure somebody must have turned up the heat on the oven. Oh, Harriet, you burn the meat now and then. It happens in every marriage. Didn't even notice it myself. I guess I'm getting used to it. Oh, the meat was fine, Harriet. Oh, yes, it was, dear. A little black and crisp, but very tasty. You're burning it much better now. (laughs) Shall we go into the living room? It might be more comfortable. Oh, fine. Allow me, Lucille. I'd better go in and close the windows. We have very noisy neighbors. A man, his wife, a married couple, always fighting and shouting at each other. Very noisy neighbors. The Thornberrys? Ozzy, we couldn't possibly have nicer neighbors. I know, Harriet, but but sometimes they can be very noisy neighbors. I'll get it. That's probably Thorny now. How do you know? He always knows. I know his buzz, dear. Pardon me. Darn you, Thorny, you missed your cue. Well, Thorny, come in. I couldn't help it. You didn't talk loud enough. Well, thank you, Oz. Shout, come on into the living room. Hello, Thorny. This is Mr. Manchester and Miss Baxter. This is our neighbor, Mr. Thornberry. How do you do, Mr. Thornberry? Hello. A pleasure. I just stopped in to see if I could borrow Ozzy's sleeping bag. 
The sleeping bag? You going camping, Thorny? No, my wife's brother's staying with us. <laughs> He's got my room, so I'm sleeping out in the backyard. Out in the backyard? Oh, it's, it's not so bad. He's only staying for six or seven weeks. <laughs> It does get a little tough when the snow comes, though. <laughs> oh, those in-laws will visit. It happens in every marriage. Couldn't you sleep on the couch, Mr. Thornberry? Mm. Oh, yes. I, I get the couch when my father-in-law leaves. <laughs> married life for you. My sleeping bag's out in the garage, Thorny. You're welcome to it. Bless you, Oz. <laughs> Wouldn't you like something to eat before you go, Thorny? Maybe a big slice of ham or a piece of bologna. Uh, no, thanks, Harriet. I, I really have to go. I've stayed too long now. It'll mean a beating when I get home. Good night. He was kidding, wasn't he, Harriet? Oh, of course oh, he was. Uh, Lucille, didn't you say something about having to get home early? Well, I'm sure Bruce wouldn't mind dropping you off. Oh, no, I wouldn't mind at all. I'll get my coat. Don't be silly, I wouldn't think of it. Lucille lives way on the other side of town, the, the southern part. Harriet and I can drive her home. I like to drive anyway. I like to drive, too. I love to drive. Oh, Bruce, always the gentleman. I am not a gentleman. Well, I mean, uh... <laughs> it'd be a pleasure. Don't be silly, Bruce. Harriet and I are only too happy to take her home. I'll get my coat. I wish Ozzy wouldn't, Harriet. I can easily take the bus. I don't know why I can't drive you home. Okay, already. Harriet, if you'll... Hey. Well, that's funny. Harriet, did you see the car keys? Well, no, dear. Don't you have them? Well, I left them right here on the table, but they're gone. Oh, that's a pity. Well, I guess you'll just have to let me take you home, Lucille. If you're sure, it won't be too much trouble, Brucey. No trouble at all. <laughs> well, I hate to rush off like this, but if Lucille has to go... Oh, go right ahead. Call me tomorrow, Lucille. Uh, you want me to ride out with you, Bruce? Oh, there wouldn't be room, Ozzy. I've got a lot of stuff in the back. Uh, seats and things. <laughs> Thanks for the dinner, Harriet. Ozzy. Good night, all. Good, Good night. night. Good night, Bruce. Ozzy? Yes, dear? Don't you speak to me, you wretch. What did I do? What did you do? What didn't you do? You did just about everything possible to discourage them. Well, I just wanted to make sure the guy had his eyes open. Oh, aren't you ashamed? Could you see how well they hit it off right from the start? Sure, I could see that. And why'd you go ahead with your scheme? Well, it was too late to call it off. I wanted to. Why did you insist that we take Lucille home? Well, if you hadn't lost your car keys, you'd have spoiled the whole thing. Oh, Harriet, you don't really think the car keys were lost, do you? You said they were. You mean you didn't even suspect that I had them right in my pocket? Ah, uh -huh. now who's the matchmaker? You could have fooled me. Well, I'm... Kind of sentimental, I guess. My mind works in strange ways. <laughs> yours not to wonder why, yours but to do and die. Yeah, that's a very good idea. What is? What you just said. I'll do the dishes and you dry. <laughs> Coming. Who in the world could be ringing the doorbell at this hour of the night? Bruce! Oh, uh, did I wake you folks up? No, 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 Bruce. That's okay. What's the matter? Is something 
Jack? On the contrary, everything's perfect. I came back for several reasons. Uh, first of all, Harriet, I want to thank you for introducing me to Lucille. There's a wonderful girl. Bruce, you ran away and got married. Uh, well, not quite. <laughs> but it's going to happen very, very soon, and I wanted you to be the first to know about it. Well, there's nothing like it, Bruce. Congratulations. I see you're both sleepy. I wanted to thank you, but, well, I wouldn't have stopped this time of the morning just for that purpose. Uh, I uh, hope you won't be sore, Oz. Uh, sore about what? Well, I guess I accidentally put them in my pocket. <laughs> Here are your car keys. <laughs> Nelson. Uh, uh, well, good night. I've got to get back to the club. Good night, Bruce. Good night, Bruce. <laughs> Say, Bruce, Bruce. Uh, oh, Ozzy. Did the door close on you? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the wind, uh, that is. Uh, I think I'll stay down at the Elks Club, too, tonight. <laughs> Thorny. Hi, Oz. Uh, Harriet, I want Oh, it's to... all right, Thorny. You're forgiven. Sit down, Thorny. Have some breakfast? Uh, no, Oz. I, uh, I came over about your sleeping bag. Oh, well, just put it back in the garage, Thorny. Well, I was wondering if I could borrow it for a while. My brother-in-law came to stay with us today. <laughs> Tune in again next week to another adventure of Ozzy and Harriet, starring Ozzy Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. And remember... America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers. Yes, Harriet, America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers. Appearing in support of Ozzie and Harriet were John Brown, Janet Waldo, Henry Blair, Tommy Bernard, Doreen Tuttle, and Donald Woods. Original music was composed and conducted by Billy May. This program originates in the Hollywood studios of the National Broadcasting Company and is also broadcast over the Trans-Canada Network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is Vern Smith speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Nero Wolf, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.